Hey there, everybody. What is going down? Well, I can tell you it's going down at my house. It is the rain, baby. It is like one of the signs of the apocalypse. It's one of the plagues of Egypt outside right now. It is just pounding. I can hear it against the wall of my office here and against the window. It's just really like, it reminds me of monsoons in Arizona. It's like that kind of rain. It's it's like here in the Seattle area, we just have like this constant kind of drizzly thing. A monsoon lets you know that you are mortal and that nature could kill you in a millisecond. And that's like the noise that's going on outside right now. I don't know if you'll hear it come through my microphone or not, but it is just like, man, it's it's invigorating because it just reminds you of how small you are in the scope of things uh, and therefore how big God is. Now, that is not the topic of the podcast today. No, it's not, but this is episode 216, and uh, today is going to be one that really goes down in the record books, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know if it's going to go down any particular record, if it'll be the longest, if it'll be the shortest, if it'll be the, the most interesting, the least interesting, but it's going to go somewhere in a record book at some point in some way. Now, as I get underway with the topic of today, I always like to do a reset as often as I can to remind us what this podcast is designed to do, what it's all about, right? Which is to help us keep in mind that our first job in this world, above all else, is to make sure we do a kicking job of representing who Jesus is, what Jesus values, and his ultimate purpose for coming, like that we embody that with our very lives every single day so that the world can actually authentically and clearly understand who Jesus is, right? So our emphasis and our focus here on the podcast is to figure out how Jesus informs all the stuff of life. It's actually why then I choose to do a lot of the difficult topics that I decide to do or why I do touchy subjects or kind of gingerly topics or things that can get our salsa level up or whatever else. Because frankly, at the end of the day, we've got to figure out how Jesus informs that stuff because I think it's too easy for us to want to kind of cordon off those things from Jesus. It's like I go to church on Sunday, I sing my songs, I sip my juice, I take my cracker, I listen to a sermon, I say amen, I walk out the door, and then I have a different kind of life the rest of the week. And I go, that's not what Jesus wants. Like you read the gospel of Luke chapter nine and Jesus is like, I want your all in everything and every way. And when you bow your knee to me, you're saying you're going to do it my way in all things at all times to the best of your ability. And that is now the mission statement that you have for your life to be like me, to represent me, to be my ambassador and to go out into the world and show my values in a world that is opposite of those values, that you get things done in my way, even though the world has a much more expedient and forceful way than my way, my way is the only way that will change the world. I mean, that's really what Jesus is getting at throughout the Gospels. That's why so often I talk about the fact that the kingdom is upside down and backwards, right? So he says, they use force, so you don't. They use, you know, uh, weapons, and so you use weapons that are not like the worldly weapons, right? Second Corinthians chapter 10, 11, 12, like that stuff, right? So, so Jesus's way is utterly different. And it should be true even in the messy things of life or in the challenging things or in the things where you look and go, the way of Jesus will not get stuff done in the world. See, that's the real test if we believe what Jesus says and if we believe what his mission is and how he really wants to change the world. Because the thing I, I, I continue to see when I read through the Bible is that that's God's ambition, that he's going to bless the nations. 
but he's going to bless the nations by us looking like Jesus and sounding like Jesus and responding like Jesus and, and fighting things, not based on the way we see fighting around us, but rather fighting with a new set of principles and values, which is servanthood, sacrifice, loving of others, giving up of selves, uh, you know, like all the things you see in Jesus that you admire in Jesus that's the only way we're going to change things. Otherwise, we're just constantly kind of just spinning the roulette wheel, right? And we're not ever going to see actual, lasting, authentic, grounded change. We're just going to keep kind of shuffling things around for a while. And that is kind of the topic of the day. Now, as you know of me, uh, especially when I talk about my own tribe or my clan, which is evangelicalism, uh, because that's the pastor that I am. I'm an evangelical pastor. I deal in an evangelical world. Uh, When I look at that world, again, in total transparency, I sometimes struggle to see how it looks like, like Jesus. Right. And, and when I say this again, I want you to understand I'm talking about this from a national perspective. When I kind of look from sea to shining sea and all of our outlying territories, right? There's a lot of data out there on evangelicalism. There's a lot of polling data, a lot of polling data related to religious practices, related to political practices. All of that's in there. And when I look at that, the thing that I struggle with, just the thing that does keep me up at night, the thing that probably plagues me more than anything else as a pastor, is that when I look at it, I would think because it has such a high value when it comes to the Bible and, and taking the Bible seriously and, and treating it as the word of God and seeing the importance of Christian distinctiveness and Christian orthodoxy and practice and everything else, I would think that in that context, that from that, the fruit of that would be this Like, man, it so obviously looks like Jesus and sounds like Jesus and acts and reacts and interacts in the world like Jesus. But when I actually kind of survey the whole territory, strangely enough, it doesn't quite look like that, right? I I, I don't necessarily look at national evangelicalism and say like, man, it's like reading the gospels when I just watch the stuff that's out there. It, It seems that there's something different in play. And, and this is the thing that's been kind of bothering me for a while, and I'm trying to understand it because I think in the end, here's something that's really, really true for all of us to accept and own. You and I, we will die. And when we die, there is this accounting process that happens. I don't understand the details of that. This accounting process doesn't have a lot to do with whether you're saved or not, but it has everything to do with you looking Jesus in the face and acknowledging whether you represented him well or rather you represented your own identity well, but Jesus was somehow tucked in there. Or you represented your own cares of this world well, but you somehow had a nod to Jesus in there. You called yourself a Christian, but you really were doing a lot of more kind of earthly things, worldly things, nationalistic things, whatever the thing is. And Jesus was just sort of riding like shotgun or maybe backseat or whatever else. He wasn't the driver of your life car, you know, like that, that's the thing he's going to want to know about. And he's going to want to know like, Hey, when the world looked at you, did they say, wow, that looks a lot like Jesus. And when the world rejected you, did they reject you because, wow, you look a lot like Jesus or was it for a series of other things? And, and again, it's not really doing a great job of being his representative or ambassador. So this one, like I said, just weighs on me all the time. Nothing new here on the podcast at this point, just stuff, you know. But I was kind of struggling with this one a lot this week, and and I was thinking about uh, 
what we value is going to come out in the things that we emphasize, the things we get excited about, or the things we neglect, the things we prioritize versus the things that we just sort of like let fall to the wayside and everything else. And and then as I dug down deeper into this, I started kind of asking the question of what kind of Jesus do we most want? And then let me give the extension from the first century into the 21st century, because I believe the first century should inform all centuries, right? So the first century, Jesus, should inform 17th century life. It should inform 19th century life. It should inform the 21st century. You know, like every time in every era, I should look and say, did that represent Jesus well? Does that capture his essence well? And I should care more about that than I care about the things that came out of those eras. And so when I think about debates between modernism and postmodernism, when I think about debates between the founding fathers and what highlights freedom today, what I should most care about is not the founding fathers versus freedom today. What I should most care about is not modernity versus postmodernity. What I should most care about is how Jesus actually says something to those contexts, no matter what, right? Like that's supposed to be the thing that is the primary focus as I assess things. And then from that, I want to measure against that and be like, hey, so then if I'm supposed to be more like Jesus than these other things, more like Jesus than modernism or postmodernism, more like Jesus than the founding fathers or modern freedoms, like then how do I do that in the context of those things that I'm dealing with? Because that's all that matters. And that's the only thing that's going to matter when I stand before Jesus. He's just going to want to know, did you do me well in your world that you lived in? And I was the chief priority over the other things. And I was the chief priority as I define myself, as I instructed you, as I am revealed in the gospels. Like, did you do that part of me well? In other words, was I actually authentically fought for? Like in the sense of you fought to be like me or did you just claim me and then you picked a lot of fights in my name, but you didn't fight as I would have you fight, which is opposite of the way of the world, right? Jesus says that to to Pilate. If this kingdom of mine was of this world, my followers would fight like the world fights. But they're not supposed to fight like the world fights. They're supposed to fight in a completely different, opposite, upside down and backwards sort of way. So then, from that thinking, here's what I began to struggle through a little bit. Um, What characteristics do we most seek, applaud, desire, vote for, install uh, when it comes to leadership, right? In other words, when a church is looking for a pastor, what are the primary traits they're looking for? When uh, Christians are thinking about politicians, doesn't matter. It could be city government. It could be state representatives, you know, kind of as far as like, you know, just sending legislator, legislators to the state capitol or if we're talking about more federally oriented. So we're sending representatives to Washington, D.C. when we're voting on a president, whatever it is, when we vote as Christians What are the characteristics that we most esteem that we would say, now that's a Christian leader, right? Maybe it's even if you think about it in terms of like companies or nonprofits or whatever else, like what are those things that we would say, ah, that is the true representation of a Christian leader because Christian leader means Christ-like leader. Like what is it that we most desire and we most esteem? Now, from this, I found myself wrestling quite a bit because I honestly believe uh, if Jesus were in the world today, we wouldn't want him to lead much of anything, 
I really believe that. I, I think we would actually struggle with his leadership approach, his leadership style. I think we would struggle with the people he would surround himself with. I think we would struggle with his disposition. In fact, I think what we would ultimately conclude is that Jesus is just too weak to be a leader in the real world. Like it worked great when he was like walking the shores of Galilee. It was the first century. There wasn't the complexities of today. He didn't have a divided culture. He didn't have people at odds with one another like we need now. We need now strong, powerful, forceful, aggressive leaders to fix our problems. Not some guy that was gentle and lowly. Come on, we don't need that. That guy was a pansy in comparison to the leaders we need today. See, now, I, I know that's hyperbole a little bit, and I know some of you are like, no, Jesus was tough, he was strong, he flipped tables, he did things. But but by and large, honestly, you look at the marching orders of Jesus, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, forgive your enemies, don't retaliate. Would you want Jesus as your president? Like, honestly, let's just be candid for a minute, right? People crash planes into a building, and Jesus says, whoa, wait, instead of going to war with them, we're going to turn the other cheek, and we're going to give them a bunch of aid and money and food and supplies. We're going to see if we can help build up their culture, because they clearly have a lot of anger problems, and the only way we can really help our enemy is to love our enemy, do good to them, bless them. That's when Jesus gets impeached right there, right? Like, honestly, it's kind of this thing where it's weird that we esteem Jesus as Christians, but we wouldn't want him to lead much stuff today. And that's what was kind of troubling me. I, I, and I'm, I'm being transparent here like this. I, I know some of you are already like, oh, what is he, what's he doing? What's he doing? But I'm wrestling with what I have in the red letters of Jesus, the things that he clearly values, the things that he clearly esteems, the things that he clearly commands his followers to do. And he mirrored those for us to do. He demonstrated those, right? And I go, would those leadership qualities and expectations work today? Would we even want them to work today? And from that, do we really want Christian leaders? Or do we really just instead want religious leaders? Like we go, like we want, you know, leaders that claim Christianity, but we don't want our leaders to actually be a lot like Christ. That would be detrimental. And 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 let me step back a little bit and maybe share why this is on my mind so much. You know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I, I keep pondering as I go back to what I said earlier about evangelicalism. Why does it not look much like Jesus? And now and I'm saying across the boards, but in so many ways, it doesn't have this reputation where people are like, wow, it's unmistakable to see an evangelical or to see evangelicalism is to see Jesus. Like nobody's making those connections, you know? And, and so... I keep going back to why might that be? And and then from that, I go, I think it's because what we desire uh, in our leaders and what we're modeling as a priority is not that we would want leaders that look like Christ. Rather, we want leaders that look like the archetype of Christ, which is King David. And so this is where a little theology comes into play for me. Um, when you think about it, it's kind of weird that the Old Testament makes David the archetype of Christ. Because you look at David, and David was aggressive, assertive, passionate, uh, you know, called people names, sung songs about wanting to kill his enemies, even infant enemies. Like, that dude was just off the chain, aggressive, assertive, driven, focused. He was an alpha leader all the way. And what's interesting about that is that by the end of his tenure as king— He wants to build the temple for God, but God comes and says, you're not permitted to build my temple because you were too violent. 
you were too aggressive. You were too assertive. He says, now understand, David, I am going to put somebody on your throne one day that will be king and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. We see this in 2 Samuel. But part of the reason his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom is because David, he's nothing like you, right? He will build my temple. In fact, he will reign in my temple. He will sit on the throne of my temple in the new Jerusalem. So the future king that comes is Christ. And what makes Christ so different than David is that Christ does everything differently than David did. So David was this assertive, combative, focused, fighting, you know, to the death, draw the blood, win the goal, whatever it is, at all costs kind of leader. And he's opposite of Jesus. That's the oddness of the archetype idea. See, Jesus will be a truer and better and different David because he will be king doing everything opposite of the way David did it, right? And so therein lies a giant difference between the two. But I think sometimes we we hunger for uh, more of a David to be our leader, right? We want the kind of leader that gets things done. And what we mean by that is gets things done in the real world. And that sort of exposes our doubt. And our doubt is that frankly, the way of Jesus won't get things done in the real world. It's nice for Sunday school. It's great as a bumper sticker. It feels oh so good when you read it in your daily devotional. It warms your heart when like, you know, some Christian artist sings it, but we don't actually believe it works. See, if we actually believed it worked, then when we would think about who becomes our Christian leaders, who becomes our political leaders, who becomes our organizational leaders, as Christians, we would want to say chiefly, do they look like Jesus? Do they sound like Jesus? Do they care about the things that Jesus authentically cares about? I think sometimes we run to more of the Old Testament, like we go, well, did, you know, what, what were the ethics and rules and responsibilities of the Old Testament? That's what we want on our leaders. And then you need assertive, aggressive leaders, leaders to do that. You need a Samuel, you need a Moses, you need a Joshua, you know, you need a Samson to get that stuff done. And yet part of those stories and all of those people are there for our learning, And in 1 Corinthians 10, you often see that the learning that we learn from from those guys is they all sowed destruction in the process of what they did. They all sowed destruction. And so they stand as a way to highlight who Jesus is in that Jesus does things nothing like any of those other characters. Now, I'm not saying that those other characters didn't love God. I'm not saying that God didn't work in the context of those other characters. I don't want you to start thinking like, oh, Matt doesn't like all the Old Testament figures. No, I think they're there for our learning. I think they're saved in heaven. They know God. God knows them. They love God. God loves them. That's all there. But they all certainly are flawed Because they would do so often things that when you then weigh that against the New Testament and you weigh that against Jesus, it looks nothing like him. And and this is like the big headline of the New Testament, right? This is the thing that sometimes I'm always scratching my head like, why don't we understand this or why don't we see this? Because when I read through the New Testament, what is undeniable is the tone that is repeatedly set on how things actually get accomplished in the world under the auspices of the kingdom. They get accomplished through this servanthood, sacrifice, 
personal giving of self, peacemaking, accepting persecution with joy, you know, like all those things that are there are how God wants to get business done. And it's interesting because we as Christians so desperately want to see the world set right, but we don't want to do the right things to get the world set right. We turn to wrong things. We turn to earthly tools. We turn to systems and strategies and structures that are doing business just like disbelievers do business too. We pick fights just like disbelievers pick fights too. We call names just like disbelievers call names too. You know, in that sense, I'm like, it's easy to see why so much of the world looks at evangelicalism and says, I I would love to see Jesus. I don't know what he looks like. I, I, I see what kind of a, a, your politics look like. I see what your love of heritage looks like. I see what your love of, uh, you know, founding fathers looks like. I see what your love of a certain worldview looks like. But I don't see Jesus in that as much. In fact, it's interesting. There, there's all kinds of different things that have gone on in the last few years, right? So we've talked about on the podcast before that there are those who have deconstructed, left the faith, and now they call themselves the nuns, right? Uh, or ex-evangelicals or ex, yeah, I think it's ex-evangelicals. I think they have a fancy term for it, like ex-vigil or ex-vigangical or I don't know what it is. Right? It's a crazy name. doesn't matter to me. They're, they're, the, they're the ones that are out. They're the nuns, right? The deconstructed nuns. There's also this group called the Duns that is starting to grow. And the Duns are the ones that say, I'm not leaving my Christian faith. In fact, if anything, I feel like I need to leave evangelicalism because it no longer actually embodies the person of Christ. It no longer represents him in any real tangible sense. It holds him up as a poster child, but it doesn't actually display him or take him so seriously that they're going to do life like Jesus. And it's interesting when you talk to the Duns, which means they've just simply left the evangelical church because they're like, you know what? I can't stay. It's an act of fidelity to leave. I feel like this, this system as it is, is too adrift for me to continue to stay in it. They leave and they're like, now I feel like I can take more Jesus more seriously because I've left the evangelical tradition. Um, I'm not saying they're all right in that or that's all acceptable or whatever else. But what they're saying is I learned of Jesus in that space, but I didn't see Jesus in that space. And so I needed to leave so that I could actually display Jesus in the world without the baggage of being associated with evangelicalism. And so you have the duns. Now, What's interesting is in the last four years, you would think that between the nuns and the duns, that evangelicalism would have decreased in percentage. Uh, And those groups represent about a 2% decline. But evangelicalism in the last four years has grown by 6%. And so you go, well, well, that's a net gain, right? At least it's a 4% increase, which is phenomenal because up to that point, evangelicalism had been seeing a decline, but now it's seen an increase. And what does that all look like? But then when we pry into the data, what we're finding is that the influx into evangelicalism is not an influx of people that are like, hey, I identify with the five major tenets of evangelicalism and we're here because we want to represent Jesus well. The influx is a political influx of people who identify with evangelicalism because they hear it shares its political ideals, not because it necessarily shares their theological ideals. 
In fact, even in this, they're finding that a lot of this identified influx into evangelicalism are people that also would self-identify as only going to church once a year, maybe, right? In other words, the actual essence of Christianity is not why they're now joining the brand. They're joining the brand because they see a harmony between their politics and this religious identity. And they go, hey, we want to be a part of that because, again, it's a solidarity element. And thus, it's watering down what evangelical means. It's not about Jesus or Christ. It's more about a political vision for the country that has tinges of religion and tinges of Christianity, but doesn't look like Christ as much as it looks like it's anity, right? So that's this thing that I continue to wrestle through and this thing that I feel like, man, we've got to get a handle on this, right? Because as evangelicals, I think we are at a crisis point. And again, I'm still talking about this nationally. So I'm not simply saying our local church or that local church, whatever else. There's just this broader challenge we have. And what I don't think the right idea is, is to say, let's just abandon the label. Let's jump ship. Let's like be the other duns and just get out, be finished, do our own thing instead. No, I don't think that's the key because I think if anything, what we need to do is start to actually inhabit what Jesus most expects of us and to hold each other accountable to those expectations. I think that's the real route forward. And I think that's going to take some faith on all of our parts because I do think we put more faith in our politicians. We put more faith in our leaders. We put more faith in our systems than we actually do in Jesus who says, here's how you change the world. Like I think about it in the book of Acts where the the, the spectators were like, uh, these dudes that are turning the world upside down, they just rolled into town, right? Like there was something about what they did that turned the world upside down. And I guarantee you, they weren't doing it like the way the world got business done. Rome did business a certain way. The Babylonians before them and the Greeks before the Romans and then the Babylonians before the Greeks and the Persians are in there too. They all did business the same. And I think in our culture, we are tempted to do business the same as the world around us. We're tempted to be partisan and political and solve problems by getting the strongest like gladiator leader to go out into the field and do business as the world does it in the name of Jesus. But that's not how Jesus gets business done at all. At all, right? That's the emphasis I want to put. And so again, maybe my challenge to all of us is to just sit down and think for a little bit, what would a Jesus-centered leader look like? What would you want on a Jesus-centered resume? And do you actually believe that that option is better than the kind of strong, determined, focused, uh, aggressive, assertive, David-like leader that I think we often settle for? Because when I look in my own evangelical ranks as far as pastors, one of the reasons we're seeing just catastrophe after catastrophe of pastors blowing out, abusing systems, taking money, exploiting females, exploiting males, exploiting staff. You know, all this stuff comes back to why they're all sort of popular as they're all sort of like David, right? Why they're esteemed and followed is that they're like that. Nobody wants weak leaders. And, and, and see, maybe that's what's so interesting is because I think it takes more strength to be like Jesus, it takes a whole lot more strength to be meek because meekness is strength under control. It takes a whole lot more strength 
to love an enemy than it takes to fight an enemy. It takes a whole lot more strength to not retaliate, right? It takes less strength to just go ahead and let the missiles fly, man, right? Like let the words come out, let the uh, aggression and assertiveness punch them in the face, you know, like, like that is, that is much easier than the Jesus way. Now in this, I know our temptation or I know the, 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 the tension maybe is a better word than temptation, the tension is we go, right, but Matt, we do live in a real messy world with really bad people that do really bad things and take advantage of systems and they want to remove our freedoms and they want to take our rights and there's always authoritarianism closing in all around us. And I go, you're right. I think that's totally true. Just as somebody that tries to be sort of objective, I think the left and the right in our country are equally poised for an authoritarian takeover if they get the chance. Both sides want their world their way and they will fight for it, right? And, and you just see that in the state politics, right? One state mandates something and another state mandates you can't mandate something. Both sides are telling businesses what to do. Both sides are telling churches what they can and can't do. I mean, it's amazing. I go, man, our human nature wants to control, which is probably why Jesus steps into the world and shows the world something utterly different. And then he says, hey, if you really want to change the world, come and follow me. And by following me, it means you do it the way I'm doing it. I think so often what we're saying is I want Jesus, but I don't want to follow his way. Or I want to claim his name, but I don't want to do business according to his ways. And therefore, I should be calling myself a a Davidivian more than a Christian. You know, I want a David more than I want a Jesus. And, And this is where I think we have to just think harder uh, kind of analyze ourselves more personally and, and, and maybe do a deep dive into what motivates our fears, our worries, and our concerns. Because so often I think at the core of what this is, is that we do find ourselves motivated more by fear, fear of what could happen, fear of where our culture might go, fear of who might be in charge, fear of what we might lose. And then from those fears, we start to use what we consider to be the most forceful tools to try to starve off those fears. But Jesus says, perfect love casts out fear. This is actually what he says uh, in 1 John. So the Holy Spirit, speaking through John, says, hey, perfect love casts out fear. Jesus certainly emulates that a time and again where he's like, don't be motivated by your fears. You have to be motivated by your faith. And a true faith says, Jesus, I trust you that the means by which you bring change will work. I actually believe that the Sermon on the Mount will change the world. I don't want to do it. In my earthliness, I don't agree with it. In my fears, I think it's stupid. Like, I want to be clear with you about this, even from my perspective. I go, the Sermon on the Mount from all earthly practice is stupid. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, yeah, the stuff of Jesus looks foolish to the world, looks dumb to the world. But you know what? Jesus says that's how we're going to get things done. And until we take it that seriously, we're not getting jack done. We're getting nothing done. Again, we're just shuffling the deck, spinning the roulette wheel, using force against force, fighting versus fighting. You know, like, again, this idea of redemptive violence doesn't work. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Right? We just got to oust the other guy. What, for how long? You know, we got to oust the other leader for how long? It's just back and forth, back and forth doesn't change a thing. Only the way of Jesus can change things. That's it. We either believe that or we don't believe that. 
And by the way, that's more than just a message, right? So we go like, that's right. Just got to preach the gospel. Yeah. And live it. Got to live the kingdom. Got to prove the value of the gospel. Got to show that the gospel actually brings change. And that means we have to confront our fears, let his perfect love cast out our fears, and then in faith exercise that love to our neighbor, to our enemy, because we're doing it to our God. And I believe if we can kind of deal with all of that and if we can take seriously what it means to be more Jesus-centered than David-centered, which is hard, it's going to be tough to wean from that, right? Because we're so accustomed to it. We've been engineering our evangelicalism for five, six decades around this idea of more David-ish than Jesus-ish. That's going to be tough to wean off of, right? But I believe if we can do that and do it legitimately and impart that to future generations, that perhaps, in fact, we might actually authentically look like Jesus. And that's what changes a society. That's what changes a culture, right? That's what's going to cause our kids to not want to leave the church, right? There's nothing more compelling than Jesus in action. But when Jesus is just a Sunday school story and they don't see Jesus in action and all that radical, reckless beauty of the things that he emphasizes and tells us to focus on and tells us to live for and to be genuinely like him, even if it means we lay ourselves down every single day that we get, like, looks like we're getting walked on in comparison so that we might lift others up. I mean, all that nutty stuff that he pushes, right? If they were seeing that, I believe they'd be like, oh, now that's otherworldly. Wow, there must be something to this. This is different. And from that, they would see lives that are truly compelling, truly changed, truly willing to buy in to the hard stuff of Jesus, not just the easy stuff of ethics, but the hard stuff of Jesus. Like if we were doing that, I believe our kids, our grandkids, and the world around us would see a true and pure vision of Jesus. And if they were seeing that in all of its beauty and boldness, man, that's when they would know that we were taking it serious to be everyday missionaries.